Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for March 8, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, the main story is entitled, Disc Golf Tournament Collects Food, Raises Funds for Charity. On Sunday, 41 hardy disc golf enthusiasts put their talents on display in East Park for a good cause, raising almost $3,000 and around 800 pounds of food for the Hawkeye Harvest Food Bank. The golfers were in Mason City to complete in the 8th Annual Ice Bowl Disc Golf Tournament, an international organization started in 1987 by Rick Rothstein in Columbia, Missouri. According to its website, an ice bowl is a disc golf event typically held in winter with a mission to increase local awareness of disc golf by raising funds for local and regional charities and an emphasis on fighting food insecurity. Many ice bowls emphasize fun over competition while burnishing a positive image for disc golf. Raising funds for charity was added as a significant component of Ice Bowl in 1996. Since then, more than $5.96 million has been raised, including over $550,000 in 2021. The event wasn't injury-free. One organizer, Bill Orozco, injured his arm the day before the tournament, when he fell while shoveling and sanding the tea boxes. Their main thing was being serious and competitive, Orozco said, but they really couldn't in the winter with ice and snow. So we decided if we can't do it as seriously, we want to choose to alleviate hunger. Competitors were required to pay a $25 entry fee and donate at least 10 cans of food to compete. The entry fee money was split three ways. The first $10 went directly to the food bank, another $10 went for prize money, and the final $5 was used for an ace pot for any golfer or golfers who scored a hole-in-one. Because nobody scored a hole-in-one, every participant was given a throw at a basket 100 feet away, with the three closest throws winning the money. According to the Mason City event flyer, $2,075 and 235 pounds of food were raised in 2020, $2,600 and 634 pounds of food in 2021, and $3,195 and 893 pounds last year. Another organizer, Harley Francis, said one competitor donated 170 cans of food. Other organizers included Dan Stevenson and Adam Karstens. All the organizers hope for another successful event next year as well. Also on the front page, an article entitled Iowa Senate Passes Bill Increasing Penalties for Child Pornography and Exploitation. People convicted of crimes related to child exploitation and pornography would face stipper penalties under a bill the Iowa Senate unanimously passed on Monday. Senator Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs, said the idea for Senate File 84 
came up while reviewing current Iowa laws that deal with such crimes. Most law enforcement in Iowa knows that if you're going to work a child pornography case, that it's best to take it to the federal level because they actually have teeth in their code, Dawson said. The bill would increase the state penalty for causing or attempting to cause a minor to participate in a prohibited sex act from its current designation as a Class C felony to a Class B felony. The categorical change increases the maximum penalties from 10 years to 25 years. People serving their sentence for a sexual exploitation case have to serve a mandatory 50% to 70% of their sentence before they are eligible for work release or parole. The bill also moves the promotion of child pornography from a Class D felony to a Class C felony, raising the maximum prison sentence from 5 years to 10 years, as well as raising the fines. Currently, people charged with knowingly purchasing or possessing child pornography are charged with an aggravated misdemeanor for their first offense and with a Class D felony for subsequent offenses. The bill raises the first offense charge to a Class D felony and any additional offense to a Class C felony. Senator Janet Peterson, a Democrat from Des Moines, introduced an amendment allowing the child victim in such cases to seek civil damages alongside any fines the state might impose. The amendment was ruled not germane to the bill. Peterson said she was disappointed the amendment was not adopted because Iowa law currently bars the survivors of child pornography from seeking civil damages before they reach age 19. The rest of those children's lives will be affected by their victimization in such cases, she said, adding that they should be allowed to seek justice in civil court. I just find it so infuriating that Iowa continues to be the worst state in the nation, barring children from access to civil damages while they're still teenagers, Peterson said, and that, my friends, is wrong. While this enhances penalties, I will be supporting the bill. But what a missed opportunity today to protect our children from child pornographers. The bill was immediately messaged to the House for consideration. Dawson said the bill does provide better protection to victims by giving law enforcement more options to punish offenders at the state level. This definitely provides law enforcement tools to bring justice to those individuals who are victimized as well as justice to individuals who are peddling in this filth and make sure that we have to get options out there, not just federal, but on the state level, Dawson said. The final article on the front page is entitled Clear Lake Property Tax Levy to Decrease, But Revenues Will Increase. The city of Clear Lake is expected to see an increase of 13.66% in property tax revenue next fiscal year due to increased valuations, but the overall maximum property tax levy will decrease slightly. The council unanimously approved a maximum property tax levy of $9.65 per $1,000 valuation after a public hearing on Monday evening. That figure includes the debt service levy and is a decrease from $9.70 this fiscal year. 
the city revenue will be approximately $6.5 million for fiscal year 2024, beginning on July 1, up from five and three quarters million in fiscal year 22-23. The council has until April 30 to finalize a budget for next fiscal year, due to Governor Kim Reynolds signing Senate File 181 into law on February 20. The law extended the budget certification timeline for a month and fixed an error made in a property tax law signed in 2021. The measure means residential property owners are off the hook for about $130 million in taxes they otherwise would have paid under an erroneous assessment formula. It will also cut into Clear Lake's revenues. The changes that they made had approximately $200,000 of impact to our revenue. It won't significantly change what we set forth in our budget, said Finance Director Creighton Schmidt. The new law changed the property tax rollback from 56.5% to 54.6%. The Iowa Department of Revenue sets a quote, rollback, close quote, rate on property taxes. The rollback is an adjustment the state makes to limit increases in the aggregate taxable value of Iowa residential property. It limits how much property tax costs can rise in a given year. A 2013 property tax cut package created a new classification of properties, multi-residential properties, which include living spaces like apartments, nursing homes, and mobile home parks. These properties exist in a separate category from other residential properties. The legislation created a system where taxes on multi-residential properties gradually declined through 2022 in order to match the taxation rates of other residential properties. In 2021, a bill signed by Governor Kim Reynolds amended that act and eliminated the multi-residential property category. Those properties were then categorized again as residential properties starting in 2022. But no changes were made to Iowa code defining how the rollback rate would be calculated to account for the categorical changes. The residential rollback rate was 56.49% for the combined property class it would have been 54.65% if the categories remained distinct. For a $200,000 home, the assessed value would be $3,684 higher under the combined property tax property class than it would be if multi-residential properties had not been included, a Legislative Services Agency report found. This is the 16th one of these I've been involved in, said Mayor Pro Tem Mike Callanan, who ran Monday's meeting. The numbers keep getting bigger. The assessed value keeps going up. The amount of things that we've been able to spend on and accomplish has edged up somewhat. But hopefully, we've been cognizant of trying to be good stewards of the public funds. In local news, a Charles City man entered an Alford plea to sexually abusing a minor in Floyd County District Court on Monday in hopes of receiving a deferred sentence. According to court records, 19-year-old Bradley Charles Leroy Eckert 
pleaded guilty to third-degree sexual abuse, a Class C felony that carries up to 10 years in prison. In an Alford plea, the accused doesn't admit to committing the crime, but believes the state has enough evidence for a conviction. The original affidavit states that on March 30, 2021, Eckert entered the alleged victim's bedroom in Charles City and choked her and had sex with her. Before he left the bedroom, he allegedly had sex with her again. DNA results from the Department of Criminal Investigation confirmed Eckert's DNA was taken from the victim, whose age is not provided. The plea calls for a deferred judgment, probation, registration to the sexual abuse registry, and court costs. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for April 17. The court is under no obligation to follow the sentencing recommendation in the plea agreement. In other local news, a Clear Lake woman is charged with child endangerment. A Clear Lake woman faces more than 10 years in prison after allegedly assaulting a minor on Sunday. According to court records, 40-year-old Carrie Lee Young has been charged with child endangerment, serious injury, and assault on persons in certain occupations. The affidavit states that at approximately 10.13 a.m. at a residence in Ventura, Young choked the alleged victim Young choked the alleged victim, and a little more than an hour later, she choked the victim again and struck her in the face multiple times, causing injury. Young also allegedly kicked a health care provider in the chest later that afternoon. The victim stated that she was having difficulty breathing and was transported to the hospital. In other local news, Mossy Cup Farms receives a Choose Iowa grant. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag announced in a press release Tuesday that the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship has awarded 28 Choose Iowa cost share grants to Iowa farmers, small businesses, and nonprofits, totaling $463,000. According to a press release, Mossy Cup Farms of Clear Lake was awarded $4,173 to upgrade on-farm commercial kitchen processing capacity from small batch to larger scale production and increase farm store capacity to offer additional value-added products. We put in a commercial kitchen last year, and this gives us the opportunity to expand production. We're making handmade soaps, rendering lard, and now able to use soup bones for stocks and soups, said Mossy Cup Farms owner Laura Tidrick. By taking advantage of underutilized ingredients, we can increase our sustainability. The Choose Iowa cost share grants were created to assist Iowa farmers, businesses, and nonprofits with efforts to increase or diversify their agricultural product offerings expand markets, and shorten the supply chain. Choose Iowa is about connecting consumers to the great products that Iowans are growing, raising, and processing in communities of all sizes across our state, Neg said. As Choose Iowa builds into an easily recognizable brand that can be used by farmers, producers, processors, farmers, markets, 
food retailers, and many others in the supply chain, these cost-share grants will help build capacity to meet the growing consumer demand for Iowa products. Mossy Cup Farms is located at 20573 Finch Avenue. Next is an article entitled Plunge in Border Crossings Could Blunt GOP Attack on Biden. A sharp drop in illegal border crossings since December could blunt a Republican point of attack against President Joe Biden as the Democratic leader moves to reshape a broken asylum system that has dogged him and his predecessors. A new poll by the Associated Press Center for Public Affairs Research shows some support for changing the number of immigrants and asylum seekers allowed into the country. About 4 in 10 U.S. adults say the level of immigration and asylum seekers should be lowered, while about 2 in 10 say they should be higher, according to the poll. About a third want the numbers to remain the same. The decrease in border crossings followed Biden's announcement in early January that Mexico would take back Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans under a pandemic-era rule that denies migrants to the right that denies migrants the right to seek asylum as part of an effort to prevent the spread of COVID-19. At the same time, the U.S. agreed to admit up to 30,000 a month of those four nationalities on humanitarian parole if they apply online, enter at an airport, and find a financial sponsor. The administration has also proposed generally denying asylum to anyone who travels through another country on their way to the U.S. without seeking protection there, effectively all non-Mexicans who appear at the U.S. southern border. The new rules put forth by Biden could help the president fight back against critics who complain he hasn't done enough to address border security issues. But the moves have also fueled anger among some of his Democratic allies, who are concerned that he is furthering a Trump-era policy they view as anti-immigrant and hurting vulnerable migrants who are trying to escape dangerous conditions in their native countries. And the new changes and subsequent drop in illegal border crossings are unlikely to stop the barrage of attacks from conservatives who see the border security as a powerful political weapon. Biden has been on the defensive as Republicans and right-wing media outlets have hammered him over the soaring increase in migrant encounters at the border. The new House GOP leadership has held hearings on what they call the Biden border crisis and talked of impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Agents detained migrants more than 2.5 million times at the southern border in 2022, including more than 250,000 in December, the highest on record. According to a U.S. official who was not authorized to discuss the matter publicly and spoke on condition of anonymity, Border Patrol agents stopped migrants about 130,000 times in February, similar to January. Among Republicans, the poll shows about two-thirds say there should be fewer immigrants and asylum seekers, while only about one in ten say there should be more. Democrats are split. 
about a quarter say the number of immigrants should increase, a quarter say it should decrease, and about four in ten say it should remain the same. They are slightly more supportive of asylum seekers specifically, with 37% supporting an increase, 26% backing a decrease, and 36% saying the number should remain the same. Under U.S. law, numbers are not capped on asylum, <clears throat> which was largely a policy afterthought until about a decade ago. Since 2017, the U.S. has been the world's most popular destination for asylum seekers, according to U.N. figures. Even those who lose in court can stay for years while their cases wind through a backlogged system. Omar Rafael, a 38-year-old independent voter in Houston, said that he supports immigration, but that news coverage of caravans of people trying to cross the border sends the wrong message to migrants. People think that they just show up at the border, come across, there's not going to be any repercussions, Rafael said. I'm not against immigration. I think immigration is good for the country, but it has to happen in a very orderly manner or it puts a lot of stress, especially on the border states, being able to provide resources. More than 100,000 migrants each month were being released in U.S. border cities late last year with notices to appear in immigration court or report to immigration authorities. Dan Restrepo, a top White House advisor on Latin America during Barack Obama's presidency, believes the American public will accept high levels of immigration if a systematic process can be followed. The challenge in managing migration is the sense of chaos and disorder that can be created by images of overwhelmed processing facilities and the like at the physical border, he said. It's less the numbers and more the imagery that bothers voters. Republicans cast Biden's expansion of humanitarian parole for four nationalities as a political ploy to divert, divert attention from the border and are not likely to let up on their criticism of the president on immigration. The Federation of American Immigration Reform, an anti-immigration group, called January's plunge in border numbers a shell game to boost Biden's re-election prospects. The poll found 39% of U.S. adults approve of how Biden is handling immigration, and 38% approve of him on border security, slightly below his overall approval ratings. About two-thirds of Democrats, but only about one in ten Republicans, say they approve of his handling of either issue. The poll was taken February 16 through 20, just before the administration proposed on February 21 that asylum should generally be denied to migrants who pass through another country without applying for protection there if it is deemed safe. The administration is angling to have the new rule take effect before the pandemic-related limits on asylum are expected to end May 11th, though legal challenges appear imminent. In a section on health, we find an article entitled A Closer Look at Metabolic Syndrome. It's a question and answer format. Dear Mayo Clinic, I just turned 40 and had my annual physical, which included a large panel of blood tests. I was told that I have metabolic syndrome 
and could develop diabetes. I was told to limit my sugar intake. Can you explain more about the condition and how I can avoid diabetes? The answer. When a person is diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, it means he or she has several conditions that, if left untreated, significantly raise the risk of developing diabetes. Metabolic syndrome also increases the risk of heart and blood vessel problems. Treatment for metabolic syndrome typically focuses on healthy lifestyle changes. Although the specific definition healthcare professionals use may vary somewhat, metabolic syndrome generally includes having three or more of the following characteristics. A larger waistline, high triglyceride level, low HDL cholesterol, also called good cholesterol, high blood pressure, and a blood glucose level that is higher than normal. High blood sugar, also known as blood glucose, is the hallmark sign of diabetes. When a blood sample is taken after a person fasts overnight and his or her blood sugar measures 80 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, that level is considered normal. A fasting blood sugar measurement of 126 or higher on two separate tests is considered diabetes. The range between the two is referred to as prediabetes. The blood sugar level of people who have, met, who have metabolic syndrome often falls into the prediabetes range. The treatment for metabolic syndrome usually focuses on three areas of lifestyle modification, weight loss, exercise, and dietary changes. Many people who have metabolic syndrome are overweight. Getting to and staying at a healthy weight can make a big difference in reducing the risk of health problems associated with metabolic syndrome. Regular exercise can help with weight loss, as well as improve some of the medical concerns associated with metabolic syndrome. A good goal is 30 minutes or more every day of activity that is moderately intense, such as brisk walking, swimming, or biking. Long-term, healthy eating is a crucial component of treatment for metabolic syndrome. It may be worthwhile for you to speak with a dietitian about a specific diet. Finally, do not smoke. Smoking cigarettes can make many of the health complications of metabolic syndrome worse. Depending upon your personal situation, if lifestyle changes are not enough to control metabolic syndrome, medication also may be part of your treatment plan. I would recommend that you follow up with your healthcare specialist on an annual basis and repeat blood work to monitor your progress and adjust your approach as necessary. And this answer was written by Robert Rizza, a doctor of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And now on to national and world news. First of all, an article from Mexico, two killed, two rescued. A group was on a trip to get medical procedure just over the Texas border. And now on to national and world news. First, an article from Mexico, two killed, two rescued. A road trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery ended with two Americans dead and two others found alive in a rural area near the Gulf Coast 
after a violent shootout and abduction that was captured on video, officials said Tuesday. The surviving Americans were back on U.S. soil after being sped to the border near Brownsville, the southernmost tip of Texas, in a convoy of ambulances and SUVs escorted by Mexican military Humvees and National Guard trucks with mounted machine guns. A relative of one of the victims said Monday that the four had traveled together from the Carolinas so one of them could get a tummy tuck surgery from a doctor in the Mexican border city of Matamoros, where Friday's kidnapping took place. Tamaulipas Governor Americo Villarreal said the four were found in a wooden shack where they were being guarded by a man who was arrested. Villarreal said the captive Americans had been moved around by their captors and at one point were taken to a medical clinic to create confusion and avoid efforts to rescue them. The two dead will be returned will be turned over to U.S. authorities following forensic work at the Matamoros Morgue in the coming hours, the governor said. Villarreal said the wounded American, Eric Williams, had been shot in the left leg and the wound was not life-threatening. The survivors were taken to Valley Regional Medical Center with an FBI escort, the Brownsville Herald reported. A spokesperson for the hospital referred inquiries to the FBI. The U.S. citizens were found in a rural area east of Matamoros called Ejido Tecolote on the way to the Gulf Coast known as Baghdad Beach. According to Tamaulipas State Chief Prosecutor Irving Barrios. Shortly after entering Mexico Friday, the four were caught amid fighting between rival cartel groups in the city. Barrios said the hypothesis is that it was a confusion, not a direct attack. Video and photographs taken during and immediately after the abduction show the American's white minivan sitting beside another vehicle with at least one bullet hole in the driver's side window. A witness said the two vehicles had collided. Almost immediately, several men toting assault rifles arrived in another vehicle to surround the scene. The gunman walked one of the Americans into the bed of a white pickup, then dragged and loaded the three others. Terrified civilian motorists sat silently in their cars, hoping not to draw their attention. Two of the victims appeared to be motionless. Another article entitled, At Least Six Palestinians Die in Raid. From the West Bank, the Israeli army raided a home in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin, on Tuesday, triggering a battle that killed at least six Palestinians and wounded more than two dozen others, Palestinian health officials said. The military said it had killed the suspected assailant behind a fatal shooting of two Israeli brothers in the northern West Bank town of Hawara last week. An Israeli police spokesperson said three Israeli forces were in fair to serious condition after being shot and wounded in Tuesday's firefight in Jenin. The Jenin Brigade, a loosely organized armed group based in the Jenin refugee camp, 
said its militants shot and hurled explosive devices at Israeli soldiers. The troops had surrounded the suspect's home on the outskirts of the densely populated camp, a hub of militant activity. Video showed black smoke billowing in the distance after the army fired missiles at the besieged building. Tuesday's raid was the latest in a string of deadly arrest operations by the Israeli military in the northern West Bank as violence surges to its highest level in years. The raid raised fears of further bloodshed as Israel struggles to contain growing unrest led by young Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, who are increasingly taking up arms against Israel's open-ended occupation now in its 56th year. The Palestinian Health Ministry said six people were shot and killed on Tuesday, men ranging in age from 22 to 49, and 26 others were wounded. Israeli security forces identified 49-year-old Abdul Fatah Karusha as a Hamas militant who killed the Israeli brothers in Hawara. Hamas issued a statement claiming that Karusha was a member without claiming responsibility for the brothers' killings. The military also said that Palestinian militants had shot down two drones over Janine. Footage widely shared online showed young men cheering and taking selfies as they held the charred aircraft aloft. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised the army for killing the assailant and sent wishes for a speedy recovery to the wounded. Whoever harms us will pay the price, he said. The spokesman of Palestinian President Mahoud Abbas, Nabil Abu Rudineh, meanwhile denounced the Israeli military for waging an all-out war against the Palestinians and for derailing recent efforts to restore calm. The army said it also raided the nearby flashpoint city of Nablus and arrested two sons of the suspect, who officials accused of helping their father carry out the attack. Another article entitled Powell Indicates Another Rate Hike. The Federal Reserve could increase the size of its interest rate hikes and raise borrowing costs to higher levels than previously projected if evidence continues to point to a robust economy and persistently high inflation, Chair Jerome Powell told a Senate panel on Tuesday. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated, Powell testified to the Senate Banking Committee. If the totality of the data were to indicate that faster tightening is warranted, we would be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Powell's comments reflect a sharp change in the economic outlook since the Fed's most recent policy meeting in early February. At that meeting, the central bank raised its key rate by just a quarter point. The quarter point raise was a downshifting after a half point rise in December and four and three quarter and, and four three quarter point hikes before that. The Fed chair's remarks Tuesday raised the real possibility that the Fed will increase its benchmark rate by half a percentage point at its next meeting, March 21 to 22. 
Over the past year, the Central Bank has raised its key rate, which affects many consumers and business loans, eight times. Fed officials plan to updated forecasts for how they expect their benchmark rate to reach. Try that again. Fed officials plan to updated forecasts for how high they expect their benchmark to reach. And in more on immigration, sources say family detention is on the table. The Biden administration is considering detaining migrant families who cross into the U.S. illegally as it prepares to end COVID-19 restrictions at the U.S.-Mexico border, according to U.S. officials familiar with the plans. That would be a major reversal after officials in late 2021 stopped holding families in detention facilities. Homeland Security officials are working through how to manage an expected increase of migrant, migrants at the border once the COVID-19 restrictions that have been in place since 2020 are lifted in May. Detention is one of several ideas under discussion, and nothing has been finalized, the official said. If families were detained, they would be held for short periods of time, perhaps just a few days, and their cases expedited through immigration court, one official said. The officials spoke on condition of anonymity. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre declined to comment Tuesday on rumors that the policy was under consideration. I'm not saying that it is. I'm not saying that it's not, she said. She refused to say whether President Joe Biden believed that detention of families was humane. The New York Times first reported the possible policy shift on Monday. And then in a digest of national and world news, we find the following. Biden plans new taxes on the rich. President Joe Biden proposed new taxes on the rich Tuesday to help fund Medicare, saying the plan would help to extend the insurance program's solvency by 25 years and provide a degree of middle-class stability to millions of older adults. In his plan, Biden overtly declared that the wealthy ought to shoulder a heavier tax burden. His budget would draw a direct line between those new taxes and the popular health insurance program for people older than 65. Biden wants to increase the Medicare tax rate from 3.8% to 5% on income exceeding $400,000 per year, including salaries and capital gains. The White House did not provide specific cost-saving estimates with the proposal, but the move would likely increase tax revenues by more than $117 billion over 10 years, according to prior estimates in February by the Tax Policy Center. The Biden administration sued to block JetBlue Airways' $3.8 billion purchase of Spirit Airlines, saying Tuesday that the deal would reduce competition and drive up airfares for consumers. The Justice Department said the tie-up would especially hurt cost-conscious travelers who depend on Spirit to find cheaper options than they can find on JetBlue and other airlines. The Justice Department lawsuit filed in Federal District Court in Boston stressed that the deal would mean the end of the nation's biggest ultra-low-cost carrier, those 
are airlines that generally provide the cheapest fares, but also tend to charge more fees. New York, Massachusetts, and the District of Columbia joined the lawsuit. JetBlue and Spirit vowed to continue fighting to salvage their agreement. St. John Paul II knew about priests sexually abusing children under his authority and sought to conceal it when he was an archbishop in his native Poland, a television news report alleged in a story that aired on late Monday. Federal authorities added 25 Border Patrol agents at a section of the northeastern U.S. border with Quebec in response to a spike in illegal crossings. The team, which started on Monday, will help deter and disrupt human smuggling activities, a spokesperson said. From Beijing, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang warned Tuesday that Beijing and Washington are headed for conflict and confrontation if the U.S. doesn't change course. Qin's language appeared to defy predictions that China might abandon its aggressive diplomacy in favor of a more moderate rhetoric. Iranian teachers protested Tuesday over suspected poisonings targeting schoolgirls as a prominent lawmaker and an activist group put the number of those reporting symptoms into the thousands across hundreds of schools. From Iraq, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin <clears throat> made an unannounced visit Tuesday to the Iraqi capital where he vowed to continue the fight against the Islamic State group until the extremists are defeated. Austin said in a statement that he held talks with Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammad Shia al-Sudani and Defense Minister Haba Uman al-Abbasi. And from Ukraine, <clears throat> a man who appeared to be shot dead by Russian speakers in a short video was tentatively identified Tuesday as a missing Ukrainian shoulder soldier, while the footage circulated widely on Ukrainian social media and caused an uproar. The country's chief prosecutor announced a criminal investigation into the killing, and human rights chief Dimitrio Lubinet argued that it was a violation of Geneva Conventions. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for March 8, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Gary Lorenz, 87, of Moline, East Moline, passed away peacefully March 4, 2023, at home, surrounded by family. Funeral Mass will be 10 a.m. March 11, 2023, at Christ the King Catholic Church in Moline. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. March 10th at Esterdal Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline. Entombment will be at St. Mary's Cemetery, East Moline. Memorials may be made to the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Lewy Body Dementia Association or Charity of Choice. Gary was born March 29, 1935, at home in Fingal, North Dakota, to Paul and Jenny Lorenz. His parents moved him and his older brother Duane at young ages to Clear Lake, Iowa, where his father was instrumental in building the first runway at the Mason City Airport.
Gary and his brother both graduated from Clear Lake High School and both were employed by their father's house moving and construction company. They were on the crew that moved a house across a frozen Clear Lake, a well-publicized event at the time. These experiences would be reflected in his future endeavors. Clear Lake native Mary Ellen Nihus, his beloved bride and best friend of 65 years, <clears throat> knew Gary's mother first. Jenny was one of her teachers. Jenny and Mary Ellen became very close over the years, long before he and Mary Ellen would become a couple. In 1956, Gary found himself home on leave and he offered Mary Ellen a ride home from her car hop job at the Lighthouse A&W in Clear Lake. The rest was history. They married shortly after and began their journey. They never dreamt they would have had the life they had together. Pinned very recently in gratitude for his service in the Marine Corps, Gary served during the Korean War, first as a clerk to the chief warrant officer, and then he worked on helicopters. Using the GI Bill and aspiring to be a lawyer, he attended Mason City Junior College and Northern Iowa University until switching gears to pursue a career in crane and heavy equipment sales with Link Belt Speeder, a manufacturer of construction cranes and excavators, where he tested at the top of the class in training. Link Belt was just the first of many sales and management positions Gary held in his career at various companies before starting his own business, Sergeant Engineers, P&H, Grove Manufacturing, American, and Gleason Cranes were all just stepping stones to Gary's 1978 opportunity to run Dan Ham, a rigging and machinery moving contractor in St. Louis, which he successfully turned around. This was also where he designed and engineered the first hydraulic gantry crane that he would later manufacture, rent, and sell all over the world. He then co-founded Lyndon Lorenz Rigging Company in 1980 in Mount Joy, Iowa, a rigging and machinery moving company performing plant maintenance and heavy machinery moving projects at many of the big plants in and near the Quad Cities, including several of the John Deere and Caterpillar plants. Riggers Manufacturing was also co-founded by Gary in 1980 to manufacture hydraulic gantry cranes to rent and sell to other rigging and machinery moving companies across the country. He pioneered the lease and rental of this type of equipment through his company, Rigging Equipment Company. In 1983, Gary sold Riggers Manufacturing to his partners and started Four Point Lift Systems in Moline, now East Moline. He went on to design, manufacture, lease, and sell the four-point lift system hydraulic gantry cranes and many other types of specialized heavy lifting equipment like nuclear cask transporters and machinery moving accessories all over the world through a network of dealers and distributors established mostly by himself through relationships built and maintained in his prior years selling cranes and other conventional heavy lifting equipment. He obtained multiple patents on his designs. In 1994, Gary acquired Badger Hydraulics, a telescopic cylinder manufacturer. Renamed Mobile Cylinders, Rock Island, Illinois, 
Gary started manufacturing all of the hydraulic and telescopic cylinders lift systems needed to manufacture their heavy lifting equipment. Gary then acquired Riggers Manufacturing in 2002 and continued manufacturing Riggers product under the line Riggers Manufacturing name. Mary Ellen and Gary traveled the world and made many beautiful friendships through their travels, most of which were business related. 2005 presented the opportunity to sell his businesses and retire, which he did. He continued to consult on heavy lifting projects. Gary is survived by his wife of 65 years, Mary Ellen, daughters Lori Lorenz Just, and Lisa Janice. Daughters-in-law Jennifer Samroska and Sherry Lawrence. Vincent Weber from Osage. Vincent P. Weber, 103, of Osage, passed away Saturday, March 4, 2023, at Faith Lutheran Home in Osage. A funeral mass will be held 11 a.m. Friday, March 10, 2023, at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Osage, with Father Raymond Burkle officiating. Burial will be in Sacred Heart Cemetery in Osage. Vincent was born November 7, 1919, near Little Cedar, the son of Isidore and Catherine Weber. He was the second of 11 siblings. He was drafted into the Army in May of 1942, where he served as an X-ray technician until his discharge. Vince was later employed by Oliver White Farm Equipment Company for 34 years as a design engineer. He enjoyed his work, which involved working with transmission gearing. Vince retired as senior project engineer. He participated in several activities, including joining a flying club and learning to fly airplanes. Vince enjoyed fishing and playing golf at Sunny Bray Golf Club, where he was a member for 51 years. He was a member of Sacred Heart Catholic Church and a member of the Osage American Legion Post 278. Vince is survived by his brother, Jim, and sister, Mary McIntyre, both of Osage, and many nieces and nephews. He is preceded in death by his parents and eight siblings. In other death notices, Cheryl S. Buren, 85, of Kanawha, died Tuesday, March 7, 2023, at the Kavanaugh Community House, the Kanawha Community House. And L. Wilda, L. Elizabeth Etchen, 90, of Clear Lake, died Monday, March 6, 2023, at home. Looking at Big Ten basketball, we have a Big Ten tournament preview. While Zach, Edie, and Purdue won the Big Ten title this season, Trace Jackson, Dav Trace Jackson Davis and Indiana had their share of big moments. Same for Boo Booey and Northwestern and Tyson Walker and Michigan State. The Big Ten conference tournament is back in Chicago this year, and judging by the regular season, it could be a wild week in the Windy City. It's March, you know. It's a good time of year, beautiful time of year, Purdue guard Brandon Newman said, and there's going to be a lot of close games. Led by the 7'4 Edie, a matchup nightmare, 
and one of the front runners for National Player of the Year, the top-seeded Boilermakers became the first team since Michigan in 2014 to win the Big Ten by at least three games. Ranked number five in the final AP poll of the regular season, Purdue could secure a number one seed for the NCAA tournament with another championship at the United Center. But the Boilermakers have split their last eight games, all in the Big Ten, and they blew a 24-point lead during a 76-71 victory over Illinois on Sunday. I think everybody in our league is battle-tested, and it's hard, Purdue coach Matt Painter said. It's really hard to go from game to game and adjust to some things. Behind the Boilermakers, a whopping nine schools finished with eight to ten losses in Big Ten play. The number two seed for the conference tournament wasn't decided until Northwestern's 65-53 victory at Rutgers on Sunday night. The Wildcats set a school record with 12 Big Ten wins this season, and their 21 victories overall are the most for the program since the 2016-17 team went 24-12. and I'm exhausted, but it's really fun to compete in a league that's this good, Northwestern coach Chris Collins said after the win over the Scarlet Knights. The Wildcats swept number 19 Indiana this season, winning both games by a total of three points. They could meet again Saturday in the tournament semifinals, but Maryland and Illinois also are on their side of the bracket. Our league is just a very competitive league with a lot of really good teams, Michigan coach Juwan Howard said. I would say all of them are good, and it's going to be interesting to see which one's not going which one's going to be the last one standing, because now you're playing in a neutral site. Walker and Michigan State have been playing with heavy hearts since last month's mass shooting on campus that left three students dead and five more wounded. The fourth-seeded Spartans closed the season with three wins in four games, including 80-65 victory against Indiana on February 21. I think the best thing we've proven, playing arguably one of the toughest schedules in the league, that we can play with anybody, Coach Tom Izzo said. Unfortunately, a lot of teams can play with us. Edie led the Big Ten with 21.9 points and 12.8 rebounds per game this season. But there are a couple of more stars who also could put together a big tournament. Jackson Davis is coming off two of his best games of the season. He had 26 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists, and 4 steals in a 90-68 loss to Chris Murray in Iowa last week. He followed that up with 27 points during an overtime win against Michigan on Sunday. He's had a stellar, stellar career here at Indiana, but he's still got a lot of basketball left, Hoosiers coach Mike Woodson said. Murray is averaging 20.5 points and 8.0 rebounds. He leads Iowa with 61 three-pointers in 178 attempts. Wisconsin has played in 22 of the last 23 NCAA tournaments, but it's in jeopardy of missing out this year. After putting together an 11-2 start, the Badgers finished with a 17-13 record. Coach Greg Gard's team likely needs a deep run this week 
to make the NCAA tournament field again. It plays Ohio State in the opening game on Wednesday. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for March 8, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. Thank you.